I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to What a Load of Cobblers podcast. Podcast for the uh, Aswell uh, fanzine What a Load of Cobblers. We launched podcast form. The first episode went down really well, so I'm pleased to be talking again to Deborah Marshall. Hello, Deborah. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? You, did you uh, enjoy the first podcast? It was good reminiscing, wasn't it? It was very good reminiscing, yeah. yeah. I, uh, just remembering out, I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah. And uh, today we're also uh, joined by a uh, former Northampton Town reporter for various local titles and uh, current chairman of the Supporters Trust, Andy Roberts. Hello, Andy. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad, thank you. I think this is a fantastic relaunch of what a load of cobblers in podcast form. I think it's a really good idea. Yeah, we, uh, you know, um, Deborah finished it, I think, in sort of early 2000s. I think it was 2004, was it? And um, yeah, we had a little chat and thought, while the uh, coronavirus thing is going on, let's just let's talk over a few memories. And I wrote a bit for what a load of cobblers in uh, I was around in those days I was, I was a kid really but yeah it's just really nice I, I think where we're going to start off is back to around 92 91 uh, how you know the, the start of the supporters trust that Deborah had a big involvement in and we'll just go back to that key uh, meeting at the Exeter rooms in Northampton um, that Deborah organized and you know Brian Lomax chaired uh, Andy you were you were at the meeting is that right? I was, yeah. I think there were 600 people there, if I recall, and it was, yeah, it was a real eye opener. Uh, I'll just, I'll um, invite Deborah to have a little, you know, talk to you a little bit about that. Now, I think Deborah wanted to talk about how you experienced it, didn't you, Deb? Yeah, uh, just that obviously, you know, I, having organised it and and sort of had all the worry of uh, of putting it together and and, and the, the thought that. Um, the club were not supporting it. The club weren't going to attend. Um, and on the morning of the, you know, uh, the morning of it, it we then heard that uh, somebody from the club was going to attend. You know, how, wh- what were your feelings leading up to that uh, particular meeting, Andy? Because obviously, I got I was heavily yeah. involved in organising it. But I just yes. wonder what your feelings as as a fan at the time were around around the actual yeah. meeting and. And, and what we were trying to achieve. Well, as, as I say, certainly from my point of view, it was a desperately worrying time because I obviously remember Michael McRitchie coming in in a blaze of glory and, you know, and 
shouting this and shouting that and and then very quickly it seemed you know things just didn't seem seem right and I recall were you doing the um match program at the time yes I was yeah yeah and there were big problems there weren't there in terms of I mean it was only a sheet of paper for one game or a couple of games wasn't it yeah for the the Burnley game um because yeah the the program editors hadn't the pro sorry the program program publishers the printers hadn't been paid all you know all season yes um and so, so they basically pulled the plug uh, that that week um and no alternative uh, arrangements could be made no i mean so so the alarm bells were, were clearly ringing and, and as i say just going into that exeter rooms meeting um i think as i say it was the second of january so it was the second day of the the new year and it's never a great time really to try and hold a meeting i expect with people on holiday or still in celebratory mood and not really focused necessarily on football. So I remember going to the meeting thinking, well, I'm not sure, you know, how many people are going to be here and is this going to be worth doing in a way? And 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 then going into that room and and I was a little late arriving and I couldn't get a seat. It was already completely packed out seating wise. And I think myself and a lot of others were sort of congregated around the the edge standing up um yeah. it was literally you know it was rammed out wasn't it completely it was, um, it, it was um, it, it, you know even now looking back I, I you know I say I leading up to it when you know when the club weren't cooperating and I, I was thinking oh goodness me you know is this just yeah. be a complete waste of time is it gonna be a damp squib but you yeah. know obviously the fact that 600 because at the time i think our average gates were about 2000 2200 yeah. yeah so you're talking 33 35 percent of our average yeah. gate turned yeah. up at that meeting yeah which which is a hell of a lot yeah that's right yeah. And, and again just my sort of recollections from from the evening just a couple of things stand out really um obviously you know i, I didn't know that the background to it and the worries about people from the club were they going to attend or or weren't mm. they in the end I think obviously Theo Foley the, the manager was there Michael McRitchie the chairman wasn't he was at a function or something and he sent a guy was it Paul Clark or something who was oh, the secretary yeah. Second. Yeah. yeah who seemed to be completely clueless for want of a better word about what was going on or or what the what the problem was and obviously Brian Lomax chaired the meeting but I think the turning point was when a guy called Martin Pell, who, who was one of the shareholders and I think remains a shareholder of the club, got up mm. and told the meeting that, according to his figures, the club were a million pounds in debt. And yeah. I mean, 1992, that was a staggering, staggering. It was. Figure, it? Yeah, because I was saying to Tom in the first podcast, you know, the Premier League hadn't even started by that stage. OK, it was going to start the following season. Yeah. But, yeah. But the, you know, yeah. the Premier League hadn't actually got underway that the, the vast sums of money that were floating that are, that are floating around the game now they just weren't there no 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 that's it you know it was it, that was that was a staggering omission and I think the whole meeting just galvanized from that point on um mm. into into thinking well we've got to do something here otherwise this this club's only going one way and it's going one way very quickly you know Still, still a vivid memory, even to this day, that that meeting and um, obviously a seismic meeting in terms of the club's history. 
Yes, and uh, um, Deborah was was saying that Deborah didn't the didn't you happen to raise like a, quite a good sum that night to start the fighting fund off the uh, ultimately sort of saved the club. Yeah, it was initially uh, you know uh, I was underwriting underwriting the cost of the rooms. Uh, it was there about six about sixty quid budget, but I just said if if people want to leave leave a, you know a donation you know to help pay for the room and anything left over would be you know put towards the club or, or and then obviously as the, as the meeting prog- progressed it was obvious that, that you know that um some sort of body was going to be formed so, and and so a fighting fund and and i think we raised over 600 pounds that night um yeah which obviously gave the the, the, the trust a, a sort of starting base of um sort of like 550 pounds to begin with um and obviously that had to be uh, banked pretty pretty quickly and 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 so i think from from following on from the, the the meeting that happened a few days later in the um in the abington you know things like bank accounts and things were set up um you know prop yeah pro, so, so there's properly audited accounts etc cetera, etc cetera. and you uh debs you uh you you chronicled that in in, in the uh, fanzine at the time and the whole time it seemed that mcritchie was keen to get hold of the money but not yeah. the influence of the supporters. And Brian was quite clear that there's no, there'd be no money changing hands without supporter representation. It was almost like, you know, yeah, yeah that, that, that particular, because um, he, he was interviewed on Radio Northampton, of course, and um, uh, he just kept saying, this is supporters' money, therefore it should come to me. Well, no, the supporters had sp- spoken and they didn't want it to go to him, you know, without, yeah. without yeah. those assurances. And uh, that, you know that um that that's that spirit of of you know community ownership it, it snowballed and it ended up with obviously brian on the, the board of the football club and the football club started started slowly but surely going from strength to strength and obviously now andy is the uh, chairman of um the supporters trust now we'll talk about his role now in the supporters trust uh, a bit later on but we'll just um cut back a bit to Andy's role as a as a cobblers fan first and foremost he came went on to become a, a reporter for the cobblers but Andy do you mind talking us through how you sort of sort of got involved with the cobblers as a, as a child or whatever and yeah no sh- sure um obviously a, a northampton lad and always keen on on football from a very early age obviously it was a natural progression really to to be taken to, up to the county ground by my brother you know and as I say my first game was Cambridge United in 1972 not a particularly great season for the cobblers not a particularly great time for the cobblers then um, but it was reassuring that um, a lad called Frank Large scored the goal for the cobblers and and we lost the game 2-1 so it was a <laughs> what you would say a, a, a pretty typical start as a cobblers fan really in terms of where things were going to go from then on but you know um in the county ground um i was on the duck boards in those days then i moved to the spine cop and eventually watched the team from the hotel end in 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 later years but you know i was completely hooked and um although the county ground we had to make the move obviously to six fields i think to progress the club but um for me, and I'm sure for a lot of older supporters, there was nothing like um, the, the county ground on a on a good day in the hotel end and the atmosphere and, um, you know, the smells and sounds as a youngster still still live with you, really. So um, it would it, I, 
it, it was never off-putting to go and go and watch the cobblers in terms of their where they played and um lucky enough you know quite quickly under bill dodgin we we formed a or got together an excellent side that um got promoted in 1976 and and i expect it's it's that 75 76 team for me um having obviously missed out on the on the first division days um that probably um you know people talk about these days which players made you fall in love with football well it was probably that 75 76 team for me um that i most fondly recall was that similar for you deborah was that the period where they beat bournemouth six nil Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, the likes Paul Stratford, Gary Maybe, Jim Hall. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, oh, some cracking players. Billy Best, Andy McGowan. Yes. Uh, A lot of players that, who came back to the club, really, wasn't wasn't there. I think, you know, the likes of Jim Hall, Don Martin, um, all had seen probably better days, but came back and still delivered some first class performances and memorable, memorable games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as has been the club's pattern, um, they lasted, well, one year in the, in, the th- in the third division as it was then, came straight back down. And so that pattern's continued over the years, really. But, um, yeah, stuck by them through thick and thin, as, as we all have, really. Yeah, a, a, a good team every 10 years, really. You could probably map it out as regular as clockwork going back to the 60s. Well, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Andy, did you... Um, you're obviously a Cobblers uh, fan, and obviously on on the uh, you know in your professional career, you started becoming involved in journalism. Can you talk us through how that uh, evolved too? Yeah, as I, as I say, I went to journalism college from school in eighty one, eighty two, um, and went straight from there onto the North Ants Post, the weekly newspaper in Guildhall Road at the time. Um, as I as I say, it was a it was a newspaper that had been set up to challenge the the Daily Chronicle and Echo. Um, the owner wanted reporters to be hard hitting and you know to you know sink or swim type stuff. It, it was no easy no easy ride, and it was a struggle at times, you know, to to adapt from what had been a pretty cushy life at college, I expect. But adapt you had to, and um, although I was mainly a news reporter then. Um, on the on the post, you did a bit of everything. So I got involved with sport and, and covering, you know, United Counties League football, a bit of the cobblers, a bit of junior rugby. So I got a good grounding there, really. Um, and then after a couple of years there, moved to the Chronicle and Echo again as a news reporter, but um, was lucky enough to cover Luton Town for six years, which is a bit of a strange marriage. But in those days, the, the the Chronicle and Echo were keen to move into Luton, who had just lost their evening newspaper, The Post and Echo. And they wanted to try and, you know, get a foothold in the town, obviously increase their circulation. Um, didn't quite work. But while they were trying that, I was lucky enough to be covering Luton Town in the days of, obviously, um, David Pleat and Plastic Pitches and Away Fan. Didn't they, had, they had quite a good side then, didn't they? Was they it, did. They had was, a, there they had a, was there a guy called Ricky Hill, not to be confused with Richard Hill? Yeah, they had a very good side. They won the Little Woods Cup in 88 and they were in Division 1, um, seventh in Division 1, I think they finished in 1987 with the likes of, as you say, Ricky Hill, Brian Steen, Steve Foster, Mal Donaghy, you know, they had some they had some good play. Mick Harford, not least up front as well, um, scored a lot of goals and they were. So very when Cobblers decent. were winning the league in uh, 1987, you, you, the Luton were also yeah. doing well. 
yeah that's that, that that's right yes yeah Luton, Luton were also on a high so it was a it was a great time really and you've and you covered the uh I shouldn't laugh, but you covered the infamous Millwall riot at Luton, didn't you? Yeah, in in March '85, you know the the FA Cup tie Luton Millwall, which obviously everyone remembers for for you know mass crowd disturbances, fans on the pitch, seats being ripped out and thrown into the director's box at Luton, and it was a really really scary time. I mean, we were sitting in the press box and there were delays to the game, and as I say fans were all over the place and missiles were being thrown and um but the referee to his great credit um i can't remember who it was on the night was insisted on finishing the game and finish it he did quite late but it was it was just a horrible night i mean luton won the game one nil um but you know it won't be remembered for that it would be remembered obviously for all the the disorder in a year in which of course was a, a horrible year for english football 84 then had the Bradford fire and obviously the Heysel disaster as well. So mm. interesting time, but not a great, not a great year for English football, I'm afraid. I was going to talk about this on the, uh, we, won't, we won't dwell on it for too long, but I was going to talk about this on the previous podcast and Deborah can perhaps try and remember uh, when the Hillsborough disaster happened. Um, well, do you remember, do you remember that happening and where you were? Cause I, I, I'll just quickly say, I, I, remember learning about Hillsborough disaster from a this is really strange but a newspaper it was on the floor we used to play football out in the street as kids and we we weren't particularly in tune with what everything was going on in the real world of foot you know the football we just used to play football in the street and we saw this newspaper on the floor and it said you know 96 dead mm. Hillsborough and we were like, oh, we were completely shocked as children so I just wondered if you can remember I'll start with Deborah first do you remember Deborah yeah, where you well, were? In, in three days' time, of course, it'll be the um, it'll be the, the 31st anniversary. Yeah, um, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, the Cobblers were actually playing Sheffield United that day mm. at at the County Ground, so there was that sort of link mm. um, because of of Sheffield. Because obviously, yeah. you know, um, and and I'll you know I'll just remember certain rumours going around the hotel end and then but not really sort of taking them in mm. um and then th- there was sort of an announcement being made there was an announcement made um about something that was going on and of course with being sheffield the, the sheffield united fans were obviously there was some concern there because of you know it was, in, it was their city and yeah. and nobody you know there wasn't the internet there wasn't social media there was no sort of instant update of what was going on and people people got transistor radios and it and and nobody could nobody could really believe what what they were hearing and and then they gave an announcement at the, at the end of the game at, um, against Sheffield United and to this day I've got no idea the results of, the, of our game against Sheffield United I, I couldn't tell you to this now you know if I, I'd have to look it up because it was just stunning it was it just it was just you know I I and at the time, um, I got the opportunity to to, to um, go in the players' bar at uh, at the county ground, and I, and I went in there for a drink after the game, and I, I got chatting to Dave Bassett, Harry Bassett, the Sheffield United manager, mm. and and it was like, you know, and, and we could see the pictures then, because there was obviously a TV in the um, in the players' lounge, mm. and, and we just sort of stood there in 
you know, in stunned um, shock. And and I, I remember Dave Bassett saying, you know, some things are far more important than football. I'll always remember him saying that. And um, yeah. it was it, yeah. it was just it was it, it was I think it was you know it was obviously a defining moment in English football, but but it, it but, was. Um, you know, it was again. I, th- I think the fact that we all played Sheffield United sort of made it a bit more close to home. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Andy? Do you remember? I, I do. I mean, I, I was covering Luton at the time, so I, I was at a Luton match. I think it was at Kenilworth Road, and I can't remember who they were playing, but yeah. I do remember in the press box. You know, there were sort of updates of a. Well, I think everyone just thought it was crowd trouble. Um, at Hillsborough, you know, there were people on the pitch, and you know, and um, I think that the, the the view at the time during the during the game was that the game had been delayed because of crowd disturbances, and it was hooliganism or or what have you. I think that was just what people thought, and yeah. you know, echo pretty much what Deborah said. It wasn't really until afterwards, as I say, there was no internet or anything. Um, you were just relying on radio communication, basically. It wasn't until afterwards that you got home and sat in front of a television screen that the, the whole mm. horror, the enormity of the the, the, the horror unfolded, really. And um, it was just it was just another one of those surreal days where um, oh, it's just very, very, very hard to hard to explain and, and comprehend. You know, this beautiful sunny day in Sheffield and um, you had that tragedy unfold you know in front of so many people's eyes and horrible horrible again you can't compute it uh deb were there fences on the hotel end at that point uh yes there were yeah um, that was there were just there were fences on there were fences on virtually every single football ground you went to if i can't think of a ground that i went to back then there weren't fences yeah just quite indicative of what was going on at the times in terms of just uh dealing with supporters and not tr- treating supporters as you know uh, human beings i guess to an extent but Absolutely. i think we, we were seen as you know to, to be herded in and herded out and 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 and, and part of that and, and i think from what andy alluded to before about about the, the millwall game and and the bradford fire and and the heisel disaster it was not long after that, really, the fanzine, fan, football fanzine movement started taking off. Yeah, it was when you know it was almost like the fans wanted to to, to bring the game back to the fans rather than the rather than the owners. Yeah, I think also, uh, mate, Hillsborough. There was obviously the Taylor report, and there was a you know a sea change in the way football was looked at. And so well, I, I'm not again, sure. But to put it in to put it into real context as well, back then. Um, again, because of uh, you know, there was football fans were still seen as this problem. The mm. the the, um, the government at the time um, were, were trying to introduce, of course, the an identity card for football yeah. supporters. You mm. couldn't go to a game; you had to have an identity card to go to a game. And it was um, it, the Taylor report basically said ID ID cards would not have stopped Hillsborough, mm. and. And basically, the, the whole ID, ID card thing was shelved from from the from the Taylor report. Yeah, obviously, uh, the, uh, yeah, recommendations for all seater stadia came. We ended up with um, with six fields, uh, 
you know, brighter days were ahead for, for football. But uh, let's 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 go back to you know Andy your career as a as a writer. You were at um, the Chronicle and Echo after this period. How how did you get involved as a, a cobbler's writer and how did that? Yeah, um, as I say, I was I was Luton Town reporter for a, for a number of years, and that overlapped with a with a summer job covering Northamptonshire cricket. So um, I was pretty firmly entrenched on the on the sports side of things at the Cron. Um, and then I think in 1994, um, obviously after we'd finished bottom of the the football league following a defeat at Chesterfield. Um, the, the editor at the time just wanted to swap things around. I'm not sure if someone was leaving the the newspaper or what have you, but decided to to swap a few things round and um, and asked if I would take on the, the the cobbler's reporting role, which obviously for a for a local lad and supporter was a was a dream come true. So that was that was fantastic. So my my um, John Barnwell was the manager at the at the time um, going into the 94 95 season. And my first game was actually um, uh, an evening game at Bournemouth, of all places, at the old um, Dean uh, Court ground, and um, which we lost 2-0. Um, and that's where it all began, really. John Barnwell and and his team struggled, and um, and it wasn't long before he was removed towards the end of that year, and, and Ian Atkins was po- appointed in January '95. I'm not sure. Sh- I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure where John Barnwell came from. He was a fo- he was a footballer in his time and a football t- type of guy. I think. I'm not sure how you know where his appointment he, yeah, came from. Wolves briefly didn't didn't he? Well, um, he, came, uh, he came into the Cobblers for um, as a management consultant to, to help yeah. Yard. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And he later went on to uh, head up the LMA. I think he was more that sort of. Yeah, football establishment figure rather than a success, successful manager, whereas Ian Atkins, yeah. Yeah. obviously, Ian Atkins, I think, was fairly similar to um, Graham Carr. Although Graham Carr got some really good players through non-league, Ian Atkins had a good phone book of players from the Birmingham area and yeah. the Midlands that he could call upon. And he had a lot of guys, you know, people like your John Gale, you know, Gary Thompson, um, uh, John Frayne, Ian Clarkson, that he, he he had probably in his back of his mind. Yes. Yeah. Um, sorry, I, I think that's a good comparison to make, actually, Tom Carr and Atkins in that sense, because that, uh, yeah. that first season, um, steady the ship. I think they finished 11th. Is that right, Andy, in the first season? Or was it no 17th did, in the first under, season? Under Atkins. I mean, they had a few blips along the way, but he, he did steady the ship because they were in danger of, of, you know, being, being at the bottom again and um, finished, finished 11th. And, um, but the point you make about having good contacts is, is, is absolutely right. And similarly with Carr, who came in um, within two years, I think of the cobblers nearly going, going, belly up in 84 having a very hard time of it within two years he transformed the club similar similarly um atkins followed the same sort of trajectory in terms of calling on some some very useful players and who who just seemed to fit into the team pattern and um get things moving in the right direction quite no nonsense era for cobblers in a way but effective football obviously um Atkins, I think Ian Sampson was already there. 
Ian Sampson yes. was on the books. He was. Yeah. And, and him and Ray Warburton were signed by John Barnwell um, at the start of the 94-95 season, I think. Yes. Okay, so uh, so a, 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 a spine for the team was for, already sort of there to an extent. I think they'd been on loan. They'd been on loan, but we, we actually we actually money for both yeah. of them. Um, I'm just looking through some of the players now that uh, were around in in that sort of period. Um, if we look uh, going back, there were people like. Uh, Mickey Bell, one of my favourite players for Cobblers. I think he was just still around then. He was a, just. a, a good link to the past. He was a winger, wasn't he? Yeah, Andy yeah. Woodman came in, the goalie. Yeah. Um, real, uh, uh, quite a few characters in the in the dressing room. Um, yeah. And then you've got, you can probably tell me through some of the other players, you guys. Well, just briefly, in his first season, 94-95, that was characterised in many ways by two games against Berry, both of which we lost by five goals to nil. And, I, and on each occasion, Atkins wasn't in a very good mood after each of those games and said, things have got to change round here. And I think after the, the home defeat to Berry, the nil five, um, Billy Stewart, the then goalkeeper, was was swiftly moved on, and Andy Woodman came in. And in the return, we lost five nil again at Gig Lane towards <laughs> the end of the season. And a few of those players never saw the light of day again. So um, he was quite ruthless as he had to be, but again brought in some some useful players. You know, like um, you had Wood, uh, Warburton and Sampson were already there, but Danny O'Shea came in another centre-back, sort of defensive midfielder, very effective player, Woodman in goal, Chris Burns in midfield, again, you know, just linked up play well and could score the odd goal. And, of course, Neil Grayson came into his own. Um, Martin Aldridge had his moments, bless him, and um, all of a sudden things began to gel. What what a player uh, Grayson was and, and went on to be. He was one of those guys that you probably let go too soon, even though he... You know, in age in age terms, he was probably considered slightly past it, but what a fantastic player! I think he's, in 19... he's still playing now, knowing Larry. Yeah. <laughs> I think he is. Yeah, I saw him in the uh, charity game up at Sixfields. I think Calvin Thomas actually played in that one, but it was a charity game. Neil Grayson into I pushing fifty, probably. You could just yeah. see he was such a a good player even you know, at that age, and uh, he scored. I'm fairly sure, and just just just. Bothering the defenders the whole time, a little pain, a little pain in the backside, but um, yeah. a, a, the sort of player we needed in those days to just sort of run run through walls and score some important yeah. goals. Um, 95, 96 season, we finished 11th, uh, 11th. So we were getting higher and higher each time. I think it, 11th is just about outside the playoffs, isn't it? And then uh, 96, 97 was when it all started coming together. Yeah. Wembley trip. Andy, was that the season when you dyed your hair? <laughs> it was. Yes. Thanks for mentioning that. We have to I, get I, to that. That's the that's the uh, that's the A grade material. Bloody, <laughs> bloody hell! That was my editor's idea because he thought it would be a good way to you know sell papers and get you know get people enthused in in the club. And to be fair, you know, um, it was a, it was a great time to be around the town at the time because everyone was buying into the cobblers and the the success. And um, I was happy to join in. But that bloody you know it that bloody hairstyle you know it was supposed to be claret and white but um yeah 
it ended up more rust brown and blonde. And I had this sort of <laughs> mountain streak for about a year afterwards, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, that lived with me for a long time, but it was worth it. But great, <laughs> great, great, great memories. And uh, those, that first Wembley trip was, I said it in the first podcast, a bit of a, you know, a renaissance for the football club. And yeah. very sweet because of the bit of, bit of feelings from the early 90s and the uh you know the sad times it just felt it felt so sweet and i'm yeah. looking at the some of the players from that team and um people uh like ian clarkson mark cooper who is you know a fairly steady player but put some good performances jason white what a legend jason white up roy, front roy, roy answer yeah yeah uh, yeah. Uh, yeah ali Paris. gibb was in there yeah Matthew Chris Rush, Lundy. you remember him, Matthew Rush? He was a good player, actually. I think that was that season. We didn't have um, him long enough to be ready. No, we didn't. No, no. He was very good when he was with us, definitely. He was a winger, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, we, we talked a little bit about the Wembley final and the semi-final and stuff at uh, Cardiff in the previous podcast. Yes. But um, what are your recollections of the, um, the Wembley final, Andy, uh, when you were covering it? Was that mostly a great day? Oh, Tense day, a, but great day overall. Yeah. It was a it was a fantastic day, you know, and as a cobblers fan, it was a perfect day, really. I, I remember saying to some people, you know, tongue slightly in cheek, but after that victory that day, and um it had been a momentous month, um, May in many ways personally for me. And I thought, well, you know, if the world's gonna end now or I'm gonna get knocked over by a bus you know I'll be I'll be extremely happy you know it's as good a time as any really because um that Wembley win and the and the manner of it because we we didn't play that well on the on the day Swansea were the better footballing side they'd had the better of us in the league matches um but you know Ian Atkins was always a man with a plan and um we got stuck in we had the odd little chance and then when you know when we needed to take the chance we took it at exactly the right time. And what a joyous feeling that was, you know, 93 minutes, final whistle. Um, and in the press box, you know, you're supposed to be neutral and you're supposed to keep your emotions under check. But it was impossible to do anything but just jump around with absolute joy, rocking all over the world, simply the best, you know. <laughs> what a, It was a, just a fantastic day. And then the celebration afterwards. And um, But as you've already alluded to, um, it came on the back of some very difficult years for the for the club. And at the mm. time, you know, with the with the board of directors that we had, with the trust involvement, with with the administrator uh, who'd come into the club, actually Barry Ward then became chairman and sorted the books out. It was a fantastic team effort and the fans played their part on the day as well. And um, yeah, just the perfect storm for, for the Cobblers, really, that that day in May 97. I, yeah, it's it's worth mentioning at the time the the, the trust did become involved in the football club. The trust never 100% owned the club. It was a, more of a board of compromise with uh, some supporters reps on the board. But um, uh, uh, the the club working in in unison functionally with the, the board and the team, you know, all as one. Brian Lomax got to lift the. Uh, the playoff uh, trophy, and, and then it rolled on. It, there, there was a f- real feeling of um, we were on a roll, and then it rolled on to the next season, which uh, we were probably like 
getting there towards more the skin of our teeth the next uh, season. But it, it just felt like the football club uh, was going somewhere, mm. reaching a bit of its potential. I remember going to places in the next season, like Watford away. Uh, I think Dean Pearce scored that day. And we, I think we took about 4,000 fans to Vicarage Road. And we were really, really yeah. flying. It felt something was happening, didn't it, Deb? Do you remember that time? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, it was just, um, uh, again... On, on the crest of a wave almost and um mm. you know just so, so many good so many good memories of you know of that season say culminating in the uh in the semi-final playoff win at, at home to bristol rovers as, as we spoke about in the last podcast you know yeah yeah and we had some uh atkins Built on the side to an extent, he put he, he brought he liked a lot of experience, doesn't he? He bought uh, mm-hmm. didn't he? He brought in Carl Heggs who uh, played the previous previous well, final for Swansea, and he, he was a character, wasn't he? Carl Heggs, what what character? With his uh, uh, socks round his shins half the time, just a dribbler, wasn't he? He was a sort of a character and a half. Yeah, it's just on Carl Heggs. Yeah, Deborah, you're right. He he played obviously for Swansea in the. In the in the 70, 97 playoff final, but mm-hmm. Atkins, what he saw from him um, um, on that occasion, and obviously signed him up for the following season at Northampton. Um, and I think the signature was sealed really when Heggs, I think, was waiting in the. I don't know if you've heard this story, but he was waiting in the little club shop office, waiting to go up and sign the papers um, with with Ian Atkins when um, John Gale walked into the shop. And Gale and Heggs had had a bit of previous at the the matches the the, the season before, and Gale suddenly realised Heggs uh, recognised Heggs and said, "What the f are you doing here?" And Heggs said, "Well, I'm about to sign for you." Um, and the next the next thing that was happening apparently was um, Gale had got Heggs by the throat. Um, Airs went everywhere. The the cash register on. The, <laughs> where the computer was on the floor they were on the floor <laughs> and Atkins had to actually come down from his office and with the help of Gary Thompson I think they pulled them apart but Atkins always said afterwards he said well that sealed it for me you know um Higgs's fighting spirit he was definitely one I wanted to sign on mm-hmm. um, history. we also had so, uh, go on Debs so I was say, uh, I would imagine Andy because uh, you know Reporting on matches and being like the reporting for the cron with the cobblers, you probably got to see an insight into the cobblers that that I, as a fanzine editor, or the fans wouldn't actually see. So you know, you probably see more of, of the players and and their interactions yeah. than, um, than 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 we would. And, and yes. so, how how did John Gale and Carl Heggs get on after that? They were they were best friends after that. I, I mean, yeah. I obviously didn't see that that incident that was reported to me, but it was it it, it certainly happened. Um, but after that, you know, they they got all their tensions out of the way and and they were f- they were fine. But but Atkins liked players that he knew. He liked experience and he liked players with a bit of spark about them. And you know, so an incident like that, you know, some managers would probably kick a player out of the club possibly for. For behaving in that way, but um, but for Atkins, no, that that was the sort of player he wanted around him, and that probably summarised the the team going into the next year, where as I say, they played in Division Three, they were up against some decent sides with a lot of money, 
And they, while not playing the most attractive of football, they were a very, very effective team and took a lot of teams by surprise right to the right to the death, really. Mm. I was looking at I was looking at on YouTube the uh, the second Wembley final against Grimsby, and um, it was quite a, a fairly close game. Woodman saved a penalty, um, but Grimsby had a um, good side actually, quite a couple mm. of really decent yeah. players. I think they had Jack Lester who you know, went on to have a really good career. So um, a bit too much quality for us, I think. And it, it, it's just a shame that it fell short because if we'd have won that game, God knows where we'd have ended up. But um... Yeah, but, but having said that, Grimsby, what, few, only four or five seasons later were in the conference. True, true. I guess that's you how funny old game. It's, that's how football goes. Uh, you know, you, mm. you, you know, it's... Um, you know, and 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 Grimsby languished in the conference for quite some time, didn't they? They did, and and Swansea, of course, who we beat in '97, soon found yeah. them work their way into the to the into the top division. You know, it's a funny old game, as they say, isn't it? <laughs> we did funny have some uh, some other other good t- uh, games around then. We had a few. I think it was the League Cup, League Cup exploits. We beat West Ham at Sixfields. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Chris Freestone. Really, really speedy striker. Yeah, two 0 I think it was uh, in the home game, and then yeah. we went to uh, Upton Park in the second leg of all. You know what a brilliant ground Upton Park was in its day. Mm. Uh, we managed to beat them on two legs, wasn't it, West Ham? They couldn't quite beat. They couldn't quite do us properly over the two legs. Yeah, over two legs. They they beat us one nil at Upton Park. I think it was Lampard who scored virtually the last kick of the game. I think um, great. You know, to beat a. a, a a, a top flight side over two games was was some achievement really but if you i don't know if you remember freestone had in that replay uh, in that second leg had a really good chance i think it was one-on-one with with the west ham yes, team to, yeah. to put it to bed really and just missed it and kept us all on tenterhooks for that bit longer mm. he was a great uh, i really like chris freestone because he was a sort of uh Pacey striker, I like. He used to, you know, running behind, run onto through balls. Yeah. Natural athlete. He was, he was, he was uh, underrated, I think, in the list of cobblers strikers. Then in the next game when we beat West Ham, we played Spurs, and I'm looking at it now. David Ginola graced the uh, David Ginola yeah. graced the six fields pitch, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And gave a master. got to say he was class that night. Yeah. He was absolute class, David Ginola. Yeah, you know, like, was it raining yeah, that yeah. Or a really heavy pitch? The pictures it like was. That. It, it, it wasn't a great, wasn't great weather-wise. I think it was certainly a very wet pitch, and obviously there was a lot of thought. Oh, Ginola won't fancy this, you know, type thing, you know, away to Northampton on a wet October evening or whatever it was. But as you as you say, he was he was a class apart. I'll give you a little That's quiz it. now. Who who was a manager of Spurs that night? Can you remember? George Graham. Yeah, George Graham. Uh, Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I yeah. guess you probably interviewed him, didn't you, Andy? Yes, yeah. Afterwards, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't can't remember too much about it, but I do remember Harry Redknapp at Upton Park um, when we'd beaten them over two legs, um, and and what a how generous he was about mm. the cobblers and spoke very highly of them, and he didn't really need to, to be perfectly honest, you know. But um, I, I thought a lot of him on the back of that. Yeah, and what was your relationship like with um, Ian Atkins? 
Uh, writers and uh, managers have a bit of sometimes have a prickly relationship. What was your Andy? What was no, your relationship? We certainly had our ups and ups and downs. You know, I was banned a couple of times, and um, you know, which goes with the with the territory, I expect. But in a way, you know, I needed him, and he needed me to a certain extent, and together, um, you know, he he was always good copy, Atkins. He was always rightly or wrongly he was hanging players out to dry after performances which a lot of people would say well you shouldn't really be doing that but you know David Rennie is a is a point of an example where he really slammed Rennie after one game so um which we lost and he was always good good copy so um there was always plenty to talk about and um but again Atkins I think was was very clever he did that deliberately he tried to generate get people talking get a get a buzz about the place and and he did that with opposition referees you know um, him and Wilson would be shouting and bawling and getting the fans to you know really make it a hostile atmosphere that was just that's just the way his his teams um breathed in a way and um although it wasn't very edifying in certain instances um, it certainly was, again, very, very effective at times. And um, he was very clever at that, um, Atkins. Obviously, you know, the, neg- the negative football eventually took its toll um, and, and he left the club. But, you know, to have nearly five years at the helm of a, a lower league club um, is, is some achievement, really. I know a lot of people have, a number of people have done done longer at certain clubs, but you know, um, he was a good manager for Northampton on the whole. And we had, on the whole, it was a pretty decent relationship, I thought. What about you, Deb? Did uh, you have any interaction with Ian Atkins during the uh, fanzine years? or um, He would always say hello as he passed by on the stairs at Sixfields. Um, usually some sort of wry comment about what crap have I written about him this week. <laughs> um, but uh, other than that, no, again... Uh, I didn't have a lot of interaction with with with, with a lot of the uh, um, when we moved to Sixfields. I think the team became more away from the supporters. What at the county ground, we were more part of it. I felt I felt at Sixfields it was more of a not an us and them, but it just it was a slightly slightly different atmosphere between the players and the, and the fans. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right. I think it was easier to put up barriers at Sixfields, wasn't it, in terms of you, know, you can go there and you can't go there. At the county ground, it was just that one bar, really, wasn't it, where, yeah. where, yeah. where everyone was in. So yes. um, it yeah. made for a good, good close-knit relationship. And uh, Atkins was uh, sacked in October 99, is that right, around then? Yes, yeah, early October 99, yeah. Uh, maybe you can give a little bit of insight, Andy, into what was going on at that point. A few fractured relationships, maybe, and stuff going on. Yeah, it, it, it was it was sad in a way because, as I, as I just said, I think he did a fantastic job for the for the football club and should be fondly remembered, in my opinion, on 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 the whole. Because, um, at the end, you know, when we lost the playoff final to Grimsby, I, I don't know if it was public knowledge, but he actually turned round the chance to go to Norwich City to manage and I can't remember what division Norwich were in but they were not obviously a higher division than us but he turned it down because he genuinely felt he was onto a good thing at Northampton and um, the club was was going places Um, 
But the 1988-99 season, well, firstly, I blame it on those horrendous shirts we we turned out. <laughs> the LSR shirts, you know, not one of my favourites really at all. Um, that, was, that wasn't a good start. Um, and they had a horrendous season. It was a really peculiar season. He didn't have a lot of luck, Atkins. He, there was an awful season with, with injuries. Um, you know, Dougie Hodgson, I think, was, was a player who'd been brought in but hardly played because he got injured and then there was an insurance mix-up and we lost a lot of money on him. He broke um, his neck, didn't he? Sorry. Didn't he uh, injure his neck somehow, uh, Dougie Hodgson? Yeah, something. It was, it was, a really, it was a, sort of a freak, freak injury, really. Um, and, and a lot of things just went wrong. And, um, and then when the results weren't going and the football wasn't great to watch, you know, there were a few factions in the dressing room began to set in, you know, players he'd brought in like um, Colin Hill from, you know, a very experienced player, international player, but wasn't afraid to voice his opinion. Carlo Corazin was another one who, who Atkins couldn't really warm to, you know, David Seal, he thought, you know, he, he was he was beginning to get views on all sorts of on, on all sorts of players and made quite draconian decisions. There was an incident with Andy Woodman and rumours going on off the field about stuff he'd got up to, which I don't think were true. Um, and Woodman had a big fallout with Atkins and, and the whole season was just a, just a mess. And we ended up getting, getting relegated um, with a pretty decent squad. Um, and when things didn't improve then early in 99-00 season, um, you know, he was he was sacked, you know, quite early on. And, and Kevin Wilson, with the help of Kevin Broadhurst, then he came in and took the helm. That was your, was that your, your, your last sort of season? Uh, yeah, that, that was good. That was, that was my last season covering them. Yeah, yeah. So you you uh, finished up with promotion under Kevin Wilson and yeah went out on a high which was good really. <laughs> so it'd be interesting. It would be interesting to hear hear from Ian Atkins. I don't know if we'll ever get hold of him, but uh, how things ended up and what he regards, you know, what what sort of level Kevin Wilson did in terms of the job and what what work Ian Atkins put into that promotion. But um, the mm-hmm. people like Carlo Corazon, they were they were talents really and. Um, uh steve howard was on the books yes uh, some some real talent steve howard obviously went on to a fantastic career and not a lot better than i thought he you know he was i never thought he'd go to the career he did with leicester um oh. but deborah, deborah might remember steve howard is a classic case of a you know a bit like neil grayson um um you know, in the past, who at the start of their cobbler's careers really struggled for form and struggled for goals. But once they well, they got going, yeah, uh, you, you had to look at say Steve Howard. S- Steve Morrison's another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, we seem to have. And I'm just hoping, uh, you know, I, I hope he does really well. But the, the lad, I can't pronounce his surname, but he's gone to Snowbans. Yeah, Jared Chaffano. Jared Chaffano. You know, yeah. I've got a feeling in, in in a couple of seasons to come, you know, he's a, he'll come back and bite us on the backside as well. Yeah, yeah. And that often happens, doesn't it? I expect in Howard's case, again, a great signing was that of Jamie Forrester, who yeah. came in at just the right time, formed a great partnership with Howard. Um, mm. so they scored a lot of goals between them and they really took us 
took us on to the to the next level and up the league and um you know into it was I think we got promoted we finished third we won at Torquay on the final day of the season but I think we were unbeaten in our last 10 games or something it was a real late run and yeah. built did, did we win the last six on the bounce it was something like that Deborah yeah yeah, yeah it was yeah it was a really good run in yeah mm. Kevin yeah. Wilson uh, was a useful player. He played for Chelsea, I think, uh, back yeah. in the day. Um, he came in, mixed things up a bit, added a couple of players here and there, and finished finished the job off. Uh, he was good, a good manager, and we were pretty useful in that in that period. Um, that was when uh, Andy, you sort of finished covering the Cobblers at that point. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. My, my final game was, as I say, that game at Torquay. And uh, what happened after that in terms of, were you still covering football or did you move on to sort of other stuff? No, I, I sort of moved on to the, 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 the subbing side, really, and then um, and left the newspaper shortly afterwards, really, um, just to try something else, to be fair. And you, well, you, obviously, you obviously had some good years. You uh, came in 94 when it was all starting to... Well, you obviously, there were yeah. some bad times and finishing up the league, but yes, things were. There were some good times and uh, some fond memories for you. Oh, de- oh, definitely. You know, it was it was a you know I was really fortunate to to come in at the time I did and to to work with you know managers and and, and players and um, you know two two Wembley playoff finals and uh, yeah, it was a a dream time really, and it was a really good time to be around the. The, the football club and um, hopefully we can have some good times again before too long. Yeah, um, in in the in- interim period up until talking now, the club, as usual, had its ups and downs. At least, well, there were two financial crises, further financial crises as the ITB digital collapse. Um, David, the Cardozas came in after that and then how can we forget the Mm. Issues of 2015, 16, with the missing million saga, which sort of leads us on to um, your involvement in the trust now uh, as chairman. When mm. did you when did you take that role on? Uh, beginning of 2018. I've been on the board for a couple of years previously. OK, and uh, obviously now with with another set of owners in terms of Calvin Thomas and, and David Bauer. Um, mm. The football club is in a, a terrible state. Let's face it, with the issues with the council, the council money. Uh, Bauer and Thomas came in, and um, there's no doubt that the the, the ship's ship's been um, steadied. Uh, the team is doing pretty good on the pitch with uh, under Keith Cole. Uh, it would have been interesting to see where we'd gone if without the uh, the break. But I think in terms of Going back to the, the themes of you know transparency and support and representation, mm. uh, Brian Lomax and Deborah and their yeah. colleagues were were promoting. There's maybe a little bit of work to do still with the trust between the trust and the club to get back up to those levels. I think. I think that's fair comment. Um, you know, sort of alluding obviously to when the trust set out in 1992. Obviously, football was a, a different game and a different animal. But but one thing that was instilled through obviously. Deborah and Brian bringing these problems to the fore and galvanising a supporter movement was that we needed 
transparency and, and proper representation at our football club because, you know, for me certainly, and I'm sure most people would agree, football is nothing without its its supporters and um, they need to be the, at the heart of, of the decision-making progress at any, any football club, really. How that's constituted is a matter um, for debate, but there should be some sort of meaningful relationship and... Um, we haven't got that at Northampton at the moment in in any shape or form to be to be fair um and it's something we need to to get get restored and um and to do that as as quickly as as possible but we have faced a number of challenges along the way so um it hasn't been easy no and it's worthwhile talking about the the developing face and you know the way way community ownership has changed in the interim period Northampton were the out the outliers really in the in the early days 92 or the first ever trust and the the pioneers and since then a lot of um, football clubs have taken the mantle on and, and and pushed forward with how fans can be partners in the running of clubs as Brian Brian said and um Exeter City were a, a club that went through a lot of problems. I remember their fans on the pitch at Sixfields at one time saying, please don't let Exeter die. Mm. Uh, do you remember that, Andy? Or, or yeah, end yeah. of May, last game of the 94-95 season. Um, yeah, where they were in awful problems and Brian gave a very stirring speech. Um, Brian Lomax gave a very stirring speech before the game to, to rally them. And um, it's something they've, they've not forgotten all these years down the line. And um, we have developed a very good relationship with, with Exeter City Supporters Trust and have seen firsthand what they're doing and what they're capable of achieving at St James's Park. And as part of our, you know, future um, community ownership um, modelling for Northampton Town, you know, there have been some very good pointers to, to, to take on board. You know, certainly where the trust is going at the moment, um, you know, football has always been a basket case, really, to a certain extent. It was back in 1992. It's even more so now since the advent of the, the Premier League and mm. salaries and television rights and all this sort of stuff. And and for clubs like Northampton Town, um, it, it's it's not easy. But um, I think we're seeing a, a sea change now, certainly not least in terms of where we are with the COVID-19 crisis and, yeah. and the perilous finances of, of many of our football clubs. I think there will, and I hope there will be a sea change towards um, a sort of a national governance model coming in for, for football clubs based around community ownership. And, and if that is the case, or going to be the case, then I, for one, want the cobblers to be at the forefront of that, you know, going forward yeah it just seems uh, sensible to to be having that discussion in a you know a rational sensible way obviously mm. in germany um 50 plus one model has been successful for a number of years with some small and huge clubs like Bayern munich alike being run um being owned by their members in the majority and when you look at the uh, the, the the success of the german model and then you also look at going back to Exeter, who are uh, supporter-owned to a, a large percent. Exeter run on zero debt. They have a, a new stand, a fantastic training ground, and um, run on a, on a community community model. They have a mixed board at Exeter City between supporters' representatives and uh, what's called a professional board in inverted commas. Um, and then, obviously, AFC Wimbledon, 
supporter owned clubs and various other sport owned clubs in England doing great guns. But I would I would point to uh, Scotland probably as the uh, most innovative uh, operators of community ownership and taking it to new places. People like the Foundation of Hearts at Hearts of Midlothian, who uh, are just about to transition in the next couple of years to fully community owned, but have an infrastructure foundation where fans pay in uh, direct debit every month and they built a new stand uh, in, in that way and really focused on infrastructure projects. There's also quickly uh, uh, Motherwell, uh, the Welsh Society at Motherwell. They've got a similar direct debit scheme and a community owned club that are doing brilliant things uh, and successfully with very little debt. And then um, one look at worth looking out for is St Mirren who are, uh, I think they've, they've moved to a 51, 50 plus one model, 51% at St Mirren. And they've actually, uh, not given, but they've, uh, a local charity has got a stake in the football club, a little a social inclusion charity. has uh, got a, a stake in the club, which I think is a fantastic model, Andy. Um, yeah. Going forward. Yes. No, I, I agree, Tom. I mean, we've, we've had certain conversations, haven't we, over the, over the weeks in terms of, what various mm. clubs are doing, you know, in, in the in the realm of community ownership. And there's some fantastic examples of work being done out there. And, and we're looking at all sorts of things in terms of, you know, what might be a good fit for Northampton Town or, or, or good practice and, and trying to, to bring something together. You know, heaven forbid that we find ourselves in another, you know, financial crisis, although the way things are stacking up, it's probably not that far away. Um, we need to be ready to, you know, to, to offer something which gives, you know, gives supporters a real stake in their in their football club and a real belonging in their football club. And um, I don't think that's yeah. something we have at Northampton at the moment. We need to get back to that. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure there's any real um, ideal uh, model for for a club. It, it's all a, a fairly um, fluid situation, sort of club by club. But the the ethos and the the mantra, you know, at least needs to be talked about is is about transparency and, and, and representation. Um, and at North Northampton, it's just something we need to and should be able to have a, a rational, just sensible conversation about. And I've heard people that are interested in community ownership being called extremists, and I really don't. I really don't buy that argument at all because um, the, the the fact that these models are going from strength to strength at various successful clubs and um, just some basic levels of um, representation, it just seems a fairly reasonable thing to be talking about. I think we need, as a football club, we need to be able to have that conversation without any sort of mudslinging or anything like that. Don't Don't you agree? I, I completely agree, Tom, and uh, the extremist comment, whoever made that, I mean, that's just, you know, not worth even commenting on, you know, um, ridiculous, really. But, um, but, let's, you know, when Kelvin Thomas and David Bauer took the club on, um, I think as part of the arrangement they made with Northampton Borough Council, they made it quite clear that um, having supporters on the board they didn't think was a good fit and wasn't viable and that that would be a a deal breaker and uh, that's something unfortunately that um you know we were we were pleased to have the club rescued back in the in the day so that sort of finer detail got got overlooked and my personal opinion is um you know supporters on the board well we had a supporter 
trust representative on the board during the dark days of the Cardoza years. And it didn't really do us a, a great deal of, of benefit, to be fair, because we ended up where we were with with a, with a trust representative on the board. Um, I'm reasonably relaxed ab about that personally. What I do feel is that there should be a meaningful relationship between the supporters trust and the football club's board in whichever way that is that's pulled together. Um, yeah. And while we've tried to broker that with Kelvin. Uh, Kelvin's the, 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 the person we've been talking to at Northampton Town. Um, for whatever reason, he's reluctant to, to engage with the trust because he thinks, you know, we're we're meddling and and asking questions we shouldn't be asking about finances and development issues he sees us as a bit of an irritant and you know at the moment he's he's shut the doors on us so we need to get back in there of course we do but um you know um we're at the at the mercy of a, of an owner and a chairman who who for whatever reason um don't want to be um don't want to be talking too freely to us and I yeah, think, it's, as you were saying, uh, Andy, as well, is that you know it's all well and good in the like in the Cardoza time we had the, the representative on the board, mm. but the transparency wasn't there. Everything yeah. we're calling for is is, is the transparency and the openness that wasn't there. That, so it, it negated the, the the whole thing yeah. of having. There's, there's no point having um, supporters representation on a board if it's just if it's just um, a token gesture. It yeah. has to be, as you've said, it has to be a meaningful relationship between yeah. supporters and, you know, and ultimately, as, as Tom says, uh, taking it taking into uh, under control of the supporters rather than um, somebody who's, you know, whose financial whim is to own a football club. Yeah, I, I, I've spoken to um, some of the guys at Fulham Supporters Trust, who are Copper's adversaries quite a lot in the days we've been talking about before they became stratospheric with their money but uh, at the Fulham Supporters Trust they have a memorandum of understanding with the football club that they've signed um, the, the the Fulham Trust get to see the books I think it's at least once a year if not more if they want it and they've got various other um, rights that are built into a memorandum, memorandum of understanding so if you had that those rights with a, uh, a, a supporters trust member on the board that galvanises, as Deborah has said, about your rights and your meaningful relationship. And um, other clubs that I, I spoke to with a, a really good relationship between the supporters' trusts and the, uh, and, the, and the football clubs themselves are building these um, strong operational relationships. And it's, I think it's only good for the club going forward and something hopefully the trust can try and uh, work with with the cobblers to just create a healthy uh, a healthy partnership that's all that's all that brian lomax wanted ever, ever wanted when i spoke to him just a healthy partnership and something hopefully we can of we course can tom to. and i mean that's entirely what we are we are trying to do i mean we're all yeah the whole trust trust board are all football fans we're all cobblers fans we want to see yeah. the club do well um yeah. but you know the role of the trust certainly as far as i'm concerned is to be a critical friend to the club you know yes supportive but to ask questions which we think need asking. Um, yeah. And, you know, in, Kelvin Thomas has been quite open when we've spoken to him before. He said, well, look, you know, when I came into the club, I honestly don't think having fans on the board will work here. He said, because half, most of the time I'm in, in America, the, the, the owner, David Bauer, um, is, lives in Dubai. 
there are a couple of other directors who sort of float around, but none of them are based in Northampton, as far as I'm aware. He said, we don't hold board meetings. We just, you know, pick up the phone or Skype each other or what have you and make decisions, you know, that way. It's that sort of, you know, loose relationship. He said, so having supporters in the in the mix doesn't really work. And he said, what we would prefer to do um, is to have a meeting of all supporters if they want to come down to one of the panels or what have you ask us questions you know they're free to do that two or three times a year which to be fair you know the club has been has been doing so they will say they are engaging with supporters and um, they don't think having a, a trust representative on the board is is the way forward for them so um I can see their point of view to a certain extent. I expect I, I take a step back and think all clubs should be constituted in a way where there's an official line in for supporters to have a meaningful say in what happens to their football club and for it to be run along community lines. And that's what I hope we can get to in time. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. And there, there, there are, there's a lot of help available for football clubs from the likes of the Football Supporters Association to, to help um, relationships with democratic organisations like the um, the Trust. Let's, let's not forget it's a democratic organisation. Um, and that moving forward to, I just think, build a better club, that that those, those themes of transparency and um, partnership uh, were key in 92 and they're key now and if um, the trust and the club could get together and work on those and you know put whatever is in the past aside I think we'll be in, in a better place and just for the fan base to talk about it you know get together and talk about things what are going on at other clubs you know like your your exeters your your mother wears your hearts and and just talk as as fans and this this goes back to Deb Deborah's time as a fanzine talk about fan culture and what unites us as fans and collectively and you know in a reasonable way and we'll, we'll plow our way forward and hopefully you know let's let's see if that's something that we can do in the months ahead when football comes back that would be a really nice thing to do I think. it would it would be nice Tom I, I don't disagree with anything you you've said all I would mm. say is that as far as and you know, and I'm sure uh, Deborah can relate to, to this from her time at the, the, the concept of the supporters trust. Fans really only become interested in a supporters trust or a movement if if the football club is in is, is in crisis mode, which we're not at the moment. I don't think necessarily we might not be that far away, but um, that's really when fans engage with the supporters trust. And, and most football fans, to be honest, if the bills are being paid, there's a team going out on the field and that team's doing reasonably well and um, that's all most football fans are are interested in by and large they don't really care what else happens until push comes to shove and you know the the future of the club is under under threat I think you know we have to do all the things you you say and 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 try and find a better way forward for the club in the future I think in terms of its governance and in the way football is going but mm. all I say is sometimes it's not it's easier said than done a lot of the time. And a lot depends on the prevailing prevailing climate, if you like. This is where uh, the Scots actually are, actually are bridging that gap. You've talked about uh, fans becoming sort of more interested in trust during a crisis. Uh, but what Motherwell are doing are creating a community around the club with fan involvement uh, via the, the direct debit schemes and various other um, community programmes they've got there. 
And it means that it's not just for a crisis. They are actually building their club day by day, including infrastructurally and improving the stadium and everything. And when there is uh, hopefully a short-term crisis like COVID-19, what they've done at Motherwell and Hearts is fans have got a direct debit system going on already. And some fans are saying, right, we'll give you instead of 10 quid a month, through this period, we're going to give you 20, 30 quid. And they're actually bringing in turnover during the the, the crisis that um, clubs, yeah. clubs like Cobblers can't do because there's no gate receipts. So yeah. it's the, the, the pioneering stuff that the Scots are doing are actually making community ownership a, a three, six, five day a year thing rather than just, a, you know, just something to get involved in during a crisis. And that's something that the trusts are looking at. I know you, you've spoken to people at um, Motherwell and Hearts. Uh, and I think it will move away from community ownership just being for a crisis. I think, I think in the in the coming years when there's a change of um, TV deal looks likely mm. soon, uh, the, the these these things will make community ownership much more of a uh, of a realistic and you know, sensible proposition in the coming years. I think. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see where all this goes post um, coronavirus, certainly. And um, yeah, all I can say is from from Northampton Town Supporters Trust point of view is we want to be hopefully ahead of the game to offer a, a viable option in the future if indeed um, the club um, needs assistance. Um, be that financial or, or 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 practical. Exactly, Deb. What do you make of? Um, you were on the ground there in the trust formative years. What do you make of football governance now, considering the lessons of those days with regards cobblers and other clubs? You know, like Bury and the problems they've been through. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you that there's got to be a bit more. Um, I don't want to use the word education, but the, a bit more awareness of, of what supporters can do. I don't. I think there's still this sort of mentality that, uh, as I said bef- once before, that you know, directors direct and supporters support, and and there's that. There's still that. There's a lot of elements of of, of supporters who still, you know, uh, are, are still um, wrapped up in in that particular thought that that you know. They, they don't want to. They, they don't understand by mm. having a stake in in your community football club, in, in your in your club. You know, it's personal. It becomes far more personal than, than because we all take our football club personally anyway. We all we've all we all in, we're all invested in in the club the clubs emotionally. Well, let's get in, in, invested in the clubs, you know, more practically in the fact that what we can do as a as a movement. Not just sort of, um, you know, having, you know, doffing our caps, saying, oh, thank you, sir, for, you know, for, you, for, yep. for doing what you're doing, you know. Uh, but yep. but I, I, it does need a sea change of attitude amongst a lot of football supporters. And and I, yep. I do think, I think you made the point very well in the last in the last podcast. I think if we could, if we, for instance, if we could get safe standing in at, at, at Sixfields, for instance, that's yep. something... Um, st- I, I personally would now, at my age, I would probably sit, sit now at a football game, whereas I always used to be, you know, stand. But I still think that that it's far too antiseptic now. We're we're, we're treated more as customers than supporters, mm. and, yeah. and we need to, we need to get back to how we felt 
that how those 600 people in the extra rooms felt uh, in 1992. Yeah. You know, um, and, I, and, and I do think that, um, that, that sort of, that sort of fire in the belly has, has gone, has gone somewhat. Yeah, when I went down to Exeter City to see what was going on down there, they had they've got a big plaque um, on the wall, and it says "We own our football club." And they t- yeah. they took me round to it, and they said, we, "You do not understand like how well you do understand because you're a Cobblers fan, but it's mm. it's so important for us that we own this football club. Mm. We we they probably had bids for the club to sell it on to X, Y, and Z, but the the strength and the um, positivity they've got from owning the club and the, all the rights they've they've got for from it is absolutely invaluable to them and um they uh a lot of the staff you speak to and at the cobblers every football club they're all fans anyway mm. to an extent a lot of fans fans uh, clubs are fan run anyway because most mm. of the rank and all of the fans sorry all of the staff are fans so it's not a, a massive shift shift in a, a community owned club and a, a privately owned club it's just in 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 a couple of ways but the ethos is that we're the community we're the, the true guardians of the football club and we're the ones that will you know see it safe through for another hundred odd mm. years and um i think that's just a conversation to be to be able to have between ourselves as fans and not it doesn't need any like you know slanging match or anything really it just needs a to be able to have that conversation and hopefully the trust can bring the conversation out there and then let's just have it openly it's yeah, just rolled just, on a bit. Yeah, we'll quickly, we'll quickly wrap up now. What would you? What, what did you make of this season? Quickly, at the end, you know, under Keith Carr, what for it? Uh, was uh, um, Katano? Uh, you know, I, I'm not anti Keith Curl per se. I mean, for, for for me, the football could be a, a bit more brighter and um, a little bit more, or a little less one dimensional in at times. But in fairness to Keith Curl, and we've been here before, you know, he's had to galvanise um, underperforming players and work within a limited budget to, to strengthen the team in certain areas, a bit like Ian Atkins did back in 1994. And to be fair, you know, if you look at the league table, you know, you would measure that as a, as a success. Um, it's against the backdrop of the quality of the football and um, some people are never going to never going to like that. But hey, it's, you know, careful what you what you wish for really um you know at least we've been competitive this year which in truth we haven't been in the last couple of seasons in my opinion so so all in all you know um the joy is probably still out but um he certainly needs to be given given every chance i think yeah i think he, he's a, he's, a, he's a good guy um the football you know, is not exactly my cup of tea but um there's a lot there's discipline in the side there's a pride in the side and as events have shown recently, there's more to life than football. And um, maybe some of the, the the critiques I would have had a few months ago are probably a bit, you know, self-indulgent. And we need you know, look at the bigger picture and hopefully we can come back next few yeah. months with, um, you know, the team's going as successful as it was before. So we wish them all the best, obviously. Yeah. Indeed. All right, guys, we'll, uh, we'll call it a day there. Um, thanks for talking. That's another interesting chat. Yeah, enjoyed yeah, it, Tom. Thanks very yeah. much, Tom, and nice to catch up again, Deborah. Yes, and you, Andy, and hopefully um, not be t- uh, too long before we uh, sort of see you down at Sixfields again. Indeed, yeah, that's right. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. So we'll be back with some more podcasts where to fill the time with uh, with all this going on. 
and hopefully short talk about some more interesting stuff from you know, that's a really good idea and i look forward to listening to the, the the first one tomorrow yeah yeah cool okay guys i'll, I'll uh, we'll wrap it up now but uh, i'll speak to you soon take care yeah, take care. Bye. 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 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.